0: Listening and giving them consent, like with so many other things with their bodies and their image, is so profoundly important because it reminds them that when their peers start taking photos of them, they are free to say, no, thank you.
1: You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soldsmith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Dr. Devorah Heitner. Devorah is the author of the brand new book out this week, Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. She's also the author of ScreenWise and has a PhD in Media Technology and Society from Northwestern University and has taught at Northwestern and DePaul. Devorah is someone I've gotten to know back when I was doing more traditional parenting journalism where, of course, you write about screen time all the time because it's all of our, one of our biggest concerns as parents. I have just always loved her approach, which is research-based, super reassuring, and just so much more nuanced than most of the conversations we hear about kids and screens. I remember a piece where I interviewed a guy a very prominent screen time researcher who told me that instead of letting my toddler watch cartoons while I was cooking dinner, I should invite her into the cooking process and let her make a, quote, big old mess with a bag of flour in the kitchen because that would be better for her brain development than watching Peppa Pig. Sigh. It was a real breath of fresh air to then get on the phone with Devorah and hear that actually little Peppa Pig before dinner is totally fine. So, There's a lot of great stuff in all of Devorah's work, but her new book, Growing Up in Public, has given me so much to think about in terms of my own parenting on this issue as I'm getting into the older tween and facing the teen years, where social media is going to be more of a thing. I think it's a valuable read for anyone who engages with the internet in any way, but definitely if you have a kid in your life who is on social media or social media adjacent, which... As Devorah explains, all of our kids are if we as their parents are on social media, so there's a lot here. And in lieu of doing the usual guest honorarium, Devorah asked me to host a book giveaway, which is so much fun. So we have four copies of Growing Up in Public from Split Rock Books, who can ship them anywhere in the United States. To enter, just make sure you are on the free or paid list for the Burnt Toast newsletter, and then click the link in your episode description. So here's Devorah, but first a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, and they have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie, and they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick-and-mortar bookstore, but it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast this includes every author i've interviewed from angela Garbez to crystal maldonado to aubrey gordon to devora heitner who you'll hear from in this episode and it also includes collections of picture books parenting books books on puberty and aging and every other topic that comes up here and if you order your copy of fat talk from split rock you can use the code fat talk at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community, to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com/slash burnt toast bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores.
0: Hi, I'm Devora Heitner and I research and write about kids growing up in the digital world. And my goal is to demystify these issues for parents, educators, and other people who are supporting kids. Because there's a lot of panic and stress out there.
1: So, a question we are constantly exploring here on Burnt Toast is how do we foster body autonomy in kids? And as you know, we mostly talk about it here in terms of food and body size, but As I was reading your new book, Growing Up in Public, I just kept thinking like, oh, this is also the body autonomy conversation. You were talking about how to help kids preserve body autonomy in digital spaces and in terms of their technology use. So just to set the stage, how can body autonomy be lost or diminished in this new era where kids, as you say, are growing up in public?
0: Well, a huge issue is that kids have very little control over what other people share about them, and that starts at home with parents. Most of us are sharing about our kids in social spaces, and that gives kids a whole record of the way that they look at different times in their lives and that's shared with people that they may not even know. It was a real wake-up call for me when my son was eight years old. We were visiting another city, and someone recognized him and said his name out loud to him. And we have a weird oh, wow. first-last name. Like, all of us in our family have weird names, so he knew it was him. And he turned around, and he was like, who is this person? And someone had recognized him from my Facebook.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was
0: a family friend. It wasn't anybody yeah. creepy. Like, my Facebook wasn't that huge But it was enough for us to both have this kind of wake up call. And he was like, wait a minute, you know, why does someone I don't even know recognize me just from how I look? And it made me realize I need to be asking him before I share, that we need to have a consent based policy around sharing pictures of one another in the family. And that I just want to limit my sharing, especially when my kid is young, because although an eight-year-old I think can give consent, I also think they may not be able to. And I give a lot of examples in the book where they may be like, put this on TikTok or put this on your Insta, mommy. And you might think, maybe this is better just for us. Like, great idea, but let's put this just for the family and for so many different reasons because you have an adult's context about that sharing.
1: I mean, kids can't necessarily visualize. Like, Even if you're just talking about a private Instagram that has 200 followers, it's hard for kids to grasp how big that audience is. Absolutely. And I think a
0: lot of us think that teenagers in particular sort of don't care about privacy because they can be so public in their own sharing. But they absolutely care if you share a cringy photo of them that their friend's mom sees and therefore their friend ends up seeing. So they
1: absolutely do care. Oh my God, I have to tell you, my wake-up call on this was when... My older daughter was in, I think, third grade, second or third grade. And I posted in my personal Instagram stories a photo that I can't even remember what the photo was, but some funny moment. And she had said, oh, so-and-so in my class told me about that. I forget, it was a dance or something. And so I posted it and I tagged the mom of that kid, like, LOL, we're doing the thing your kid told my kid. And then I was like, oh, that kid's mom thought it was so funny. And she was like, you posted this? He saw. Are you kidding me? Like she was horrified with me. And I was like, oh, right. Like you having this other kid in your class. See, you do. I don't know what the social dynamics are here. I don't know if like you guys are really friends or if you were just telling me about this person. Like it was just I felt horrible. And it was just a clear, oh, right. You need to be giving consent. I cannot be assuming that I understand the inner workings of your social network and what you are comfortable putting out in the world.
0: Absolutely. And I think that that wake up call often comes around seven, eight, nine, once kids have a more autonomous social circle. And yet they're still very connected. If you're part of an elementary school community, a lot of your social circle might be also (laughs) their friends' parents and their peers' parents. And that's a very tricky place where maybe you don't want to share about their social anxiety or school avoidance or a new diagnosis of, you know, dyslexia or something
1: else because that's theirs to share with their friends or not. You describe in the book this moment when a lot of kids do get on social media and realize how much their parents have been documenting them since birth and feel really violated. I mean, this is something I've wrestled with a lot as someone who's semi-public and writes about parenting. And have been in setting increasingly stricter boundaries around what of my kids goes into my work and on the internet. But it's true in these personal spheres as well. So how do you suggest parents think about what we're posting? What is a good strategy for this sharenting?
0: It's really important to talk with kids once they can engage with you. So certainly your seven and ups, you know, and especially tweens and teens. I mean, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, they will let you know. If your kid is saying, don't take my picture, I think we have to respect that. I <sighs> have been known to beg. I, my kid doesn't want to be photographed at all. And I'm like, I need at least 12 a year just for the grandparent calendar. You have three grandparents. They get a calendar. You need 12 photos a year.
1: That seems a reasonable ask. I ask for one family photo a year with my older yeah. daughter. She hates photos. And I'll be like, can we have one shot, one family photo that I can count on? And I, this year, I got it in January. And honestly, I wish I waited a little bit because... <laughs> now there's been all these moments where I don't get the picture. But I think listening and giving them consent,
0: like with so many other things with their bodies and their image, is so profoundly important because it reminds them that when their peers start taking photos of them, they are free to say, no, thank you. They're free to go to their friend's house and have their friend be like, let's do a TikTok dance. And your kid is free to be like, I'd love to dance with you, but I don't want this on your channel. Or I do, and that's okay. Or I don't want to be on your YouTube, Right. I've talked to kids who were even recorded by other kids on Discord where they're playing a game together and then the kid is like live streaming, you know, the gaming session and the other kid doesn't know. So we really want to make sure that kids understand that you have a right to say no thanks. Yeah, You don't even have to have a reason. You can certainly be ready with a reason like my strict parents won't let me be on YouTube when I'm 10 mm-hmm. or I don't like how my hair looks right now, like whatever you want to say. But you can also just be like, no, thanks. And that's OK. You don't have to have an excuse or
1: a reason. I just want to hit that a little harder because I am realizing I have had moments where I really want the photo and she says no. And I'll be like, well, you have to tell me why. And now I'm just like, oh, God, no. Why did I do that? Like, you're absolutely right. No is the complete sentence. We don't owe anyone that explanation. So, OK, that is something I can change. Note it.
0: And it reminds them that they should ask permission, that they shouldn't snap that photo or take a video and put it up into the world without their friend saying yes. And if their friend is putting their hand over their face, you don't take the picture. Modeling consent is so huge. And I have had parents tell me it improved their relationship with their child, that their child felt like they were paparazzi. It was stressing them out or that they were moderating their behavior and not being as silly and loosey-goosey at home. The last thing any of us would want is our kids curtailing their childhood and their innate silliness and and adorability because they don't want those bunny slippers shared with their fourth grade class.
1: You talked about having a rule of waiting 24 hours before you post something. Like even if your kid has said, yeah, it's okay to share that just because they're so often that like caught up in the moment. I have to post this right away. And if you wait a day, you might be like, whatever, it's fine. And that seems super smart.
0: And that's great for kids, too, especially when we talk about the age where they might start feeling like they're being left out more or leaving other people out, sometimes like those early, you know, middle school years where you can be really keened into that exclusion channel in your brain. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to see the pictures of other people ice skating. So maybe you do share some pictures from that outing to the beach with your friends, or maybe you sit on it and realize I'm just happy to have these in my own phone memories I think all of us are having a kind of a moment with social media where we're like, wait, how much of our lives do we need to share anyway? And as the very media changes, I mean, you know, as we move maybe from like some that we liked before to other spaces like and and think about even if I move away from an account, you know, how much of my memories are in this legacy account that I don't even use anymore? And do I wish I just had it all in one place
1: Mm -hmm. so that
0: those family photos are available to me? Mm -hmm. But do I want Mark Zuckerberg or anyone else to have my family album? Like, maybe I want to go back to even printing
1: photos. Right, right, right. Another tip I loved was your advice to limit how many full body shots you post of your kids.
0: I got that from Dr. Stephanie Zerwas, who's a researcher about eating disorders and eating disorder prevention and treatment. And I spoke with her because I wanted to really understand what role social media can play in exacerbating the risk of eating disorders and what the rules should be if somebody is in recovery. And she said she really thinks that all parents should just limit how many full-body photos or things like bathing suit photos and things like that because it just gives our kids something to look at and kind of obsess over. It can be a space where they go back and ruminate and look at their 9- or 10-year-old body and compare it to their 12- or 13-year-old body and with longing or you know, rumination, and that's not healthy. So again, that doesn't mean we can never take pictures of our kids, you know, if you're on a camping trip. So I mean, a full body picture to me, like fully clothed in our sweatshirts sitting around the fire is probably less provocative of body rumination than a bathing suit photo or a gymnastics photo on a leotard or something like that. I think we all are familiar with the fact that puberty can feel like being, you know, taken over by aliens. And, you know, for some kids, it's a lot to manage. And the body image pressure on kids is intense in that time anyway in our culture. But just thinking about how many pictures you had of yourself from, you know, ages like eight to 15, where you're kind of able to microanalyze things about your body. I mean, for me, they're just holiday pictures and school pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And a picture of me like lighting Hanukkah candles is less likely to be a body rumination moment. Right. Provoker.
1: I remember taking a disposable camera on like a camp field trip to an amusement park and developing the film later. This was like eighth grade. And it was the first time I had that really sort of Disassociating experience of looking at photos of my body and not really recognizing myself and feeling strange about it. And I'm just thinking, like, that was one roll of film. I developed, like, what, nine photos. And we're talking about, like, today, kids, there's thousands, right? Like, your phone is just full of photos. Turning down the volume on that seems so helpful if just one photo can trigger big feelings like that.
0: Yeah, less is more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, another thing you talk about in the book that is really fundamentally a way that parents are with good intentions, but nevertheless violating their kids' body autonomy, is this routine use of geo-tracking and monitoring kids' texts and other digital communications. So we're not up to texting yet because my kid is 10. But I have used the geo tracking. She has like one of those gizmo watches, and when we were trick or treating last year, she was like racing around the neighborhood in the dark. That I could be like, "Oh, okay, she's down," you know, at so and so's house, and it was reassuring to use in that very specific capacity. But your chapter on this really made me rethink it, and I would love for you to talk a bit about what you see as the the cost of this sort of continually knowing where our kids' bodies are in space. Well, and I'd start by
0: saying you're not alone. I think a lot of parents find the technology to be both reassuring and anxiety provoking. So it's, yeah. it's both and, right? And the fact that we can do it, makes us feel like we should. Like our parents didn't have that option as we were racing around the neighborhood Mm -hmm. in the dark collecting candy. And they just had to live with whatever anxiety (laughs) that provoked. (laughs) And because we have the choice to geotrack them that way, I think a lot of people do find that reassuring. And people I talked to for the book definitely said that. At the same time, the fact that you can do it raises a lot of questions. I think Mm -hmm. as long as we're open with our kids and maybe Halloween might be sort of a special case, but are we tracking our kids on their walk to school and that's their routine walk to school? Historically, we live in a very safe time. Like our kid is probably pretty safe walking to school, you know, most of the time. Right. And the things that we worry about in our culture are these, you know, huge events like school shootings and obviously really terrifying things, right? where it's not clear that geotracking would actually help us or make us feel safer. Like, we need to do things as a society to make the world safer. But geotracking our kids is not really, I think, the answer in that situation. And when we're talking about teenagers, especially where their independence is really an important part of their development, especially covertly tracking our kids is very problematic. I think doing it openly in specific instances, like say they're driving across country to visit colleges independently and... We know we won't sleep if, you know, yeah. we're sending our, you know, drivers had a license for six months to drive across state lines. Maybe then we say, yeah. OK, I'm going to geotrack you because it'll make me feel better. But also, can you call me when you get there? Yeah, that's reasonable. But if we start geotracking our students at college, for example, which some parents told me they that do. it
1: was wild. Oh, my god. Many, many
0: people are still paying their kids bill in college. So they're on your phone plan. But please don't track your kids. Oh, see if my they're going Lord.
1: To it is a right of the college student to be not going to class you do not need to know that you not of detail or you if they slept in know. somebody else's
0: room last night you don't
1: want to know you don't want to know it's fine. you don't need to know no not your business
0: not until they bring that person home and introduce right. them then you can be like nice to meet you right. but that's when you should be finding out you shouldn't be like well why did your little dot spend the night
1: you it's know this other two dorm. inches from yeah. your
0: usual little <laughs> dot it's like
1: that's <laughs> a little invasive dad yeah wow that is wild yeah it is something to really sit with and figure out how to be more open with our kids about it. And also, can we do much less of it? Well, we want to think about what
0: we're habituating them to as well. Think about like their future romantic relationships. Like what if their future partner or, you know, someone they're dating says like, I just want to track you all the time on this. On this oh, my act. God. I need to. Oh, my God. Do we want to accustom kids to thinking this is what love looks like?
1: I mean, same as what you were saying about letting them say no to photos without a reason so that they can say no without a reason to friends or to romantic partners. Like, yes, yes. We forget how much of what we are modeling for them is going to be what they accept as normal in their other relationships. So now let's talk a little more about how to approach what the kids are doing online. I just think for a lot of parents, screen time, social media, all of it is this place where we have a hard time breaking out of the restrictive mindset, right? My kids are younger. I do still carry around rules in my head around, like, scream time limits and how long should they be on their iPads and all of that. I'm trying to relax my grip, but I admit this is a hard one for me. But is this a situation like sugar where we know restriction is going to only breed fixation and deception and, like, they're going to do it anyway?
0: It is really tricky. And I do think there are a lot of analogies to like why we don't want to restrict related to food with Mm -hmm. a kind of a misguided focus on health. And I think with tech, there is a place for thinking about the quality of our kids experience more than the quantity, first of all. So thinking about Mm -hmm. their creativity versus consumption, if they are consuming And this may be a little where the food analogy doesn't work because we do want to think about what they're consuming because there are things that are harmful, Mm -hmm. and I think that is a little bit different than food. Like like if our kid is, yeah, yeah, pornography for example, I'm going to say is is harmful. There's a lot of content related to dieting that's harmful, and again, anything even on the fitness kind of categorized as fitness uh, or nutrition or wellness is all super adjacent to very toxic content for kids. And so I'm very leery of any of that. Like if your kid wants to work out, have them go to their coach, who hopefully is someone who's doing this in a safe way. Say, like, my kid, for example, runs cross-country. If he wants to work out in the off-season, I would want him to go to his coach for that, not follow some rando online who might give all kinds of weird advice advice, or might suggest things that are, again, adjacent to diet culture. And I think there are other things as well, that things that are just too scary for a kid. You know, like for Mm -hmm. a 9- or 10-year-old, there might be movies that are just too scary or violent, or Mm -hmm. even the news, I think, is probably content we want to tread carefully with at this point and make sure at least that we're watching with our kids. If we're going to watch national or local news with our kids, I wouldn't want my kid to watch that on his own. That's something I want to watch with him so we can talk about what we see and and engage about that. So I think we want to teach kids good skills in terms of media literacy, understanding where they're getting their information, and we want to help them balance their experience between connecting with others, solo media use, creativity, consumption, all of that. And honestly, the best way to do that is to model a balanced use. I do think some kind of hardcore restrictions can work and especially for younger kids. Things like taking away connected devices at night so kids yeah. can sleep.
1: Yeah, that seems smart. Is a
0: strategy I'm very comfortable with as a parent. Mm-hmm. Like I do mm-hmm. think at a certain point in high school kids probably need to learn to self-regulate mm-hmm. around some of those things and And if a kid is struggling to self-regulate, maybe we could work together and collaborate on a plan. But I do think, you know, most middle schoolers are not ready to self-regulate around their own sleep.
1: Well, you know, there's a nice parallel there with the food stuff we talk about. Parents should be in charge of when food is eaten, right? Like you're in charge of figuring out the meal schedule, like wanting there to be a dinner time versus a just like five hour free for all of we're eating here and there and kids don't really get in touch with their hunger. And it makes sense. Similarly, like kids would need to learn those regulating skills before they're ready to be like, I will go to sleep even if I watch my iPad until 10 o'clock or whatever. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And the devices and apps
0: are designed to keep us there. So yeah. I think also talking with kids about that design and really helping them understand like, hey, these games are designed to keep you feeling like you almost won and you, you know your avatar is going to come back and the mm-hmm. next round you really are going to win or TikTok has no ending cues. So if you want to get anything else done today, you need to make a plan right. for when you're going to stop doing TikTok because right. TikTok's never going to be like done. It's not yeah, going to be TikTok like when I was kidding. a kid watching yeah. Little House on the Prairie and then the episode was done. <laughs> right. And, you and were, then like, I got up to do something else.
1: On the bedtime thing, one of my kids needs a meditation app to fall asleep to, so we do have a device in the room for that. I've shut off everything else on the iPad except for the meditation app at night, but we've had to have a lot of conversations about it because I also know she's smart enough to figure out how to override all of that if she wants to. So it is one of those things where what I love about your work is that you're not making these hard and fast rules and like sort of blanket prescriptions, you're allowing for a lot of this should be a conversation between parents and kids. This should be something you're figuring out what works for your family. Exactly. The last thing I really want to get into is sexting. This chapter, Devorah, blew my mind. I mean, I'm not there yet. My kids aren't old enough. Some of this is just I haven't thought enough about it. But I really did think of like, well, sexting is only ever terrible. And I just want to read two things you wrote because they really— really resonated you wrote the uncomfortable truth is that when consensual and private sexting can be nothing more than another form of healthy teenage sexual exploration one that often has no social consequences if we use fear tactics to shame our kids or scare them into not sexting we only make it harder for them to seek out adult help if they get into a tricky situation and then you went through a lot of the research on this and concluded Kids who feel autonomous and like they have free choice don't seem to experience sexting as harmful, according to numerous research studies, and that's important. This is, like, really paradigm shifting. I'm excited to have the
0: conversation because I do think it's paradigm shifting for me as well. And I mean, spoiler alert, but the book opens with a story that I tell about my own teenage years. Mm Right, and the camp cabin photo (laughs) from Sleepaway Camp. (laughs) And I think, again, you know, it's going to be okay. And we want kids to be able to explore their bodies through solo sex, masturbation, and when they're ready, if they want to, with partners. Mm -hmm. And the idea of them sharing pictures, because we live in a world where privacy can be so compromised, because we live in a world that criminalizes teenagers for sexting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are reasons to be concerned. As a parent of a 14-year-old, I'm not saying I want my kid to do it or that I'd be like happy (laughs) if I found out it was happening. I just think it's important to understand that it can be fine and that many, many kids have told me and other researchers who've done much, you know, wider spread, you know, like studies with thousands of kids versus the, you know, hundreds of kids I've talked to, Are saying they're fine. Yeah, they're okay. Not every kid gets arrested or sextorted or has Mm -hmm. a horrible experience. Mm -hmm. And for some kids, they're saying it's empowering. And when we look at even from a public health perspective, it is safe for sex. Right.
1: Right. You can't get pregnant.
0: You're not going to get pregnant. You're not
1: going to get an STD. Yeah. I think a lot of parents today are trying to think like, how can I be more sex positive? You know, we name the body parts, we talk about masturbation, all of that's great. This is another layer to this. We have to talk with our kids about about, like. And you also make the point, like, it's happening. So to take the perspective of, like, it's always terrible and it should never happen is just not particularly helpful because kids are going to do it. We
0: want kids to know that there are risks, of course, but that especially it's important to know that no one should ever be pressuring them to send an image And that that's not okay. No one should be ever sharing an image of themselves non-consensually. And again, to be really clear, like, this is mostly girls in high school getting mm-hmm. dick pics from guys. No boys told me this story, but several mothers of boys told me, Oh, my son gets unbidden pictures from girls, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like a flirting tactic. And maybe some boys would be like, woohoo. And mm-hmm. others are like, this is uncomfortable for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. This is not the kind of flirting I like. Girls pretty universally were like, I'm not into dick pics. No, it is. And a few yeah. were really clear that even a boy they previously thought was cute might have been interested in talking to you more, that was like an off-putter. So I actually have said that to groups of boys, like when I speak in middle schools and high school. And I I would say it in a really respectful way because truly kids are so clueless right now and don't know what works. And to just say to boys like very kindly, like if you are a boy who likes girls and you would like to get to know a girl, and you're interested, here are some things that you could try. Mm -hmm. Definitely don't try that. Like if you lead with, you might get arrested, they're going to not listen to you because that doesn't happen to most people who do it. If you instead say, I mean, you could certainly say, you know, if you did this in the workplace as an adult, you would definitely get arrested, right? You could say that. But just to say like, this is really off-putting and girls may consider it to be harassment. Like they may report it. And even if they don't do that, they're not going to look at you the same way. It doesn't feel respectful. There's a million other things you can try right. that might be a way of approaching a classmate or a peer that you would like to get to know more. And this is not one of them. Right. Interestingly, queer boys, <laughs> which I wrote about in the book, like are a little bit more open huh. to those kinds of things. But even then it's consensual. It's like, can I send is still yes, um, a way to approach nice. that. Like You don't just send the unbidden <laughs> genital pick to be clear for Ugh, anyone listening
1: lord um, no. never do that never do but that. i think
0: for kids they're so confused about what will work and i think about myself with crushes as a teenager like leaving poems in people's locker mm-hmm. can i be so sure i wouldn't have tried a sexy picture yeah. like i don't know oh i know i didn't have the technology to try that right so i think we shouldn't be on this like moral high ground like i never would have done that because think about The outfit you wore to try to be alluring, the time you tried to go somewhere without your glasses on. I'm just talking about my own experience here and couldn't see. And then that wasn't alluring because maybe you (laughs) fell (laughs) or whatever. So like your attempt to be alluring backfired. Like So just like whatever misguided things you tried to, you know, get people to like us. I think these are some of the things kids are doing. And I think we, so we want to be very clear they should never non consensually do this and that they should never pressure anyone to share. Mm-hmm. And that if they do exchange texts in the context of a mutual consensual exchange and their relationship ends, the respectful thing to do is to delete the photos. Yes. Not to keep them and certainly, again, never to share them, no share matter them. what. Like, even if you're really hurt by someone, there is just no time where it's ever okay to non consensually share.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And
0: I think we want to really emphasize that if it happens to one of your kids' friends, and this is where I really do want to think about a little bit of, you know, feminist solidarity, especially, you know, among girls. It's like, don't throw that friend under the bus. Yeah. Like, your friend's privacy has been violated. Yeah. You want to stick by that person and support them. And that's really important. Yes. And yes. so I think it's just really profound to think about consent and safety and trust around sexting and not just focus on the understandable fear, because if you're confronted with an image of your child that you never wanted to see or one of their friends or something like that, first of all, you're in a really awkward situation. Like You're seeing your kid in a way you were never intended to see them and they they would never want. So it's violating all kinds of boundaries. But you want to communicate to your child if you find out that they've been sexting, that you continue to totally respect them Mm. and their autonomy and that your concern is for their safety and this is especially if they've had something circulate non-consensually. I mean, yes. frankly, you know, say you have a 17-year-old in love and you find out they're consensually sexting with their partner and you find out because something comes up on their phone and it's on the kitchen table, right. I would just pretend, just, I would treat that like you saw them, you know, with the half-open bathroom door right. and you wish you hadn't, you just pretend that you didn't see that and yeah. you move on and, yeah. if, you know, everyone's happy. Yeah. But if they're coming to you saying, I'm in a jam because my photo is circulating around because my ex shared it or some horrible thing, then you just want to communicate to them your respect for them. And you're so profoundly glad they came to talk to you. And these are the steps you're going to take together. And I talk about this more in the book of like, what are your steps at school? What are the the legal rights you have in that scenario? But also let them know how much courage it took to let you know and how proud you are of them. Like you really want to communicate your respect because especially if your kid is being slut shamed at school,
1: Mm.
0: it's really important to hear from their parents how much you respect them
1: and I also want to say I think this is a great chapter for parents to share with their teenagers because you had some great tips about like make sure your face is not in the photo like make sure you're not identifiable like there's ways to do it that you can never totally prevent one of these worst case scenarios of it getting circulated but you know just like smart strategies to take and I, I loved that approach too
0: I want to give some credit to my colleagues who I'm cribbing some of those from and they're cited in the book. Samir Hinduja and Justin Patchen wrote these great safer sexting tips that I cite in the book. And I have a few of my own that I added, but I think it's really worth looking at that. And they are cyberbullying experts, actually. So they they have have seen the the bad scenario where it's weaponized against kids. And I think it was honestly really brave of them to... Talk about safer sexting because I think what everyone wants is, you know, just don't do it. And we're not in a place where that's realistic. And the laws are about 10 years behind where kids are.
1: It really feels like a vestige of purity culture and having this idea about kids and sex that's not realistic and not inclusive in any way. I loved the reframe and I loved all the awesome practical advice. It's just such a great book. And I think folks are going to get so much out of it. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. We end every episode with my recommendation segment. We call it Better for Your Burnt Toast, where we each recommend something we've been loving lately. So, Devorah, what is your better today?
0: I really loved—I just read Page Boy.
1: Oh, I haven't read that.
0: Yeah, Elliot Page's autobiography. The memoir. It's really profound. And I read it because my sister is a huge fan. And we're close, So, Like, I can give my sister a book that I read on the plane. So I bought it, read it on the plane, and then gave it to her. (laughs) And so now we can, like, have a little sister book club and talk about it in a few weeks. But I loved it. And it really helped me in my thinking and understanding. And it's, I think, a profound book about bodily autonomy. So yes. a, a, probably a read that other people oh, I can't wait to read will it. enjoy.
1: That's an excellent recommendation. My recommendation is actually going to be tech-related. We just got the Skylight calendar, which is basically, it looks like an iPad, but it's, it doesn't have everything an iPad has. It's a digital calendar that can sit in your kitchen. And you can link it to or wherever in your house and you can link it to your Google calendars or whatever online calendars you use. And it shows your family's calendar in a really clear, like really beautiful design. That's just like super easy for like the kids to understand the schedule, all the grownups to understand the schedule. It also has like a built in grocery list. And, you know, so it's just like a useful family organization tool that I got it for. But a fun thing about it that I think is related to this conversation is there is a way to send pictures from your phone to be displayed as the screensaver on it. When it's like you aren't looking at the calendar, it'll just rotate through whatever photos you load onto it. And I realized when I did it, number one... It was a great way to talk to my kids about, like, taking photos and displaying photo. Like, it's a way, especially for, like, my five-year-old, for whom, like, social media is way too abstract a concept, as a way for me to be like, do you want me to take your picture? Do you want me to put it up on the calendar? And so we could do some consent practice right there and involve her in the process in a more tangible way than, like, her understanding what it means if I post something on my phone. Like, she doesn't know what that means yet. And I realized I had less of an urge to post a photo on my private Instagram for 200 people to see because I could just look at it in my kitchen. I realized like, oh, I just wanted to enjoy the photo. I didn't need to share it. So that was kind of a cool thing.
0: Yeah. That sounds like something I could really use in my house because we've tried all these like paper calendars and all these solutions. Nothing really works. We all have ADHD. And I do think teaching kids digital calendaring is super important, especially as they get to middle school and high school and yes. manage their assignments. But yes. I I think I would enjoy something like this. I'm going to have to have a look at it.
1: It's really cool. And you don't have to do the photo part. I was just surprised. I was like, yes, I think it will be useful from an organization standpoint. And this like ability to share photos just in our house with ourselves turned out to be more fun than I expected it to be. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Tell listeners where they can find you and how we can support your work.
0: Absolutely. You can come check out my speaking if you want to bring me to your community. If you know anyone who wants some support on raising kids in the digital age, I go out to schools and workplaces and speak. And that's at devoraheitner.com. If you want my Substack, that's devoraheitner.substack.com. And I'm also on Instagram at
1: devoraheitnerphd amazing thank you for being here it's so much fun to talk with you thanks so much for listening to burnt toast if you'd like to support the show please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and if you have a minute leave us a rating or review they really help folks find us and help the podcast grow you can also consider a paid subscription to the burnt toast newsletter it's just five dollars a month or 50 for the year you get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toes podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Sol You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at V underscore SoulSmith. You will not see pictures of my kids in any of those places. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet, body liberation, jerk music.